Support for this episode of Big Biology comes from Sable Systems. There's basically no other company that has had such a big impact on my research. I started using some of their products to do insect respirometry when I was a postdoc, and I fell in love with their modular, intuitive, easy-to-use machines. And when I got my next job, I bought a whole respirometry system based on their gear. You know, I was always surprised by the way they encouraged me to modify their devices myself. Most companies ominously tell you that opening the device voids their warranty. Sable Systems Gear is designed by working scientists to understand that every experimental setup is unique and that systems have to be highly customizable. The devices are unfussy, robust, and easy to set up. You can find their products at sablesys.com. That's S-A-B-L-E-S-Y-S dot com. In Origin of Species, Darwin brings up one of the most frustrating things about studying evolution. It supposedly happens so slowly that it's hard for us to see it at all. In a famous passage, he wrote, quote, It may metaphorically be said that natural selection is daily and hourly scrutinizing throughout the world the slightest variations, rejecting those that are bad, preserving and adding up all that are good, silently and insensibly working whenever and wherever opportunity offers. He then writes, we see nothing of these slow changes in progress until the hand of time has marked the lapse of ages, and then so imperfect is our view into long past geological ages that we see only that the forms of life are now different from what they formerly were. For more than 100 years since Darwin wrote those lines, this was the standard thinking, that evolution was so slow that we would see its effects only after eons of selection had passed. In this episode of Big Biology, we talk with Rosemary and Peter Grant, emeritus professors from Princeton University, about their work on the finches of the Galapagos, the same finches that Darwin observed during his visit in 1835. Over the course of a decades-long study, starting in 1973, the Grants saw evolution happen in the blink of a geologic eye. What would you say is your most important contribution from the work in Galapagos? One of them is the fact that we were able to show um, and document natural selection with an evolutionary response to natural selection and know why it happened and how it happened. Mm -hmm. um, the, you just say why that was in, important. Okay, I, carry on. Well, I, I think just add to the fact that um, this was in the late 1970s, and at that time it was generally thought that, yes, bacteria evolve quickly, but big things like birds uh, don't. Mm -hmm. And I think it was... Um, uh, a, a very influential uh, piece of work uh, done in an entirely natural environment that showed uh, evolution as a natural force on that scale of contemporary time. These days, the grants are using modern genetic tools to take their work even further. For instance, much of their work in Galapagos is focused on the beaks of finches. Depending on environmental conditions and the presence of competitor species, the sizes and shapes of bills evolve. Big bills are favored when large, tough-to-crack seeds predominate, but smaller bills are more advantageous when the rains come and smaller seeds become common. Until recently, though, they didn't know which specific genes enabled bills to become shorter or thicker. New collaborations have implicated a few key genes, including bone morphogenetic protein 4, calmodulin, and a few others. To the grants, one of the biggest surprises in their work, and also one of their major contributions to evolutionary biology, was the discovery of how fast evolution can proceed. For a long time, we assumed that evolution was slow, but when we spent enough time in the field to watch it, we saw it could happen quickly. That's one of the reasons the grants are big proponents of getting scientists out into the field. They argue that it's not enough to simply do an experiment in the lab. Researchers need to test that idea in the real world. 
In this episode, we talk with Peter and Rosemary about their time on the Galapagos, their contributions to evolutionary biology, and the extraordinary experience of watching natural selection in action. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. Start um, just some warm-up sorts of things uh, to get comfortable answering questions. What's the best dish you make? <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, <laughs> that's easy. <laughs> we um, because we have to get all our food down in the um, Galapagos. Um, basically, what we get is tuna and rice and oatmeal. So we take we're there on the islands for as long as three and four months. Mm-hmm. So we take down what we call a tuna repair kit. And a <laughs> tuna repair kit consists of herbs and spices and Indian spices so that we can make the tuna and rice dish taste a little bit different every <laughs> evening. And we eat porridge for breakfast. Okay. So we have oats, which we make with porridge, and we have... Um, cans of um, milk, which actually is, I think, a sort of originally a sort of baby formula thing, <laughs> <laughs> which was in, uh, which was the nearest dried milk we could get down there. So, so, so are you sick of tuna at this point, or are you? We never eat tuna when we get away from the island. <laughs> <I bet, laughs> well, fresh tuna we have, but oh, not out of a can. Not, not out of a can, can. Right, right. But that was the only food we could get to take out. Fantastic. Well, that's a good segue, I think, into talking about your work on the Galapagos and, and Darwin's finches. And we just wanted to ask, uh, how did you arrive at that as a location and those okay. species as focal species? What, what was the process for getting there? Well, we, um, we were both interested in... Um, trying to understand the process of speciation. How do species arise? Um, And Peter, with more of an ecological background, I had more of a genetical background, but we had the same question. So I came at this question from um, being very interested in variation within a species and how did this variation um, could be selected upon to um, go into different directions under different environmental conditions. And we were, um, well, I'll let Peter fill in his his part, but I could go on a little bit with my part, which is um, I had previously, when I was at Edinburgh, before I met Peter, um, had wanted to, uh, to do, go off and do a PhD. And actually I had chosen a PhD, or I had, designed a PhD thesis, which was to look at um, fish in um, Icelandic um, fjords. And the interesting thing about the char in those fjords were that there were benthic forms and amnetic forms. They'd all come from the sea. And you knew from most of the fjords exactly when they were landlocked because it was volcanic. And the geologists were able to tell you exactly when they were landlocked. And I had worked out a way of sort of measuring these birds, uh, sorry, <laughs> these fish, these char, char and, um, and also done, worked out a way of testing them genetically. The sort of skin graft met- method, mm-hmm. um, which was very similar to blood typing. Mm-hmm. And so I had this all worked out. I had applied for money to get it. I got the money, and I actually, um, in those days, you, this is the way you did it, and then you look for a, a supervisor having got this. And I had done all that, but then somebody said, well, this is, um, you have 
this, um, you'd ju just be perfect for standing in for a person in um, at University of British Columbia. Um, and you could do this for a year and then come back and carry on and start your PhD. So I, I did this and then I met Peter and I didn't do the fish do PhD. <laughs> but the Galapagos, we had this um, interest in the Galapagos and the Galapagos was perfect for looking at this, these questions. And Peter will tell you his approach to coming in. Um, because for several reasons, well, for three reasons particularly, it was an archipelago off the coast of um, Ecuador. And many of the islands were pristine, so it had never been touched by humans. So anything that we looked at, the, the birds on those islands, we knew um, any changes that we measured, we knew was the result of natural conditions and not human-induced conditions. Mm -hmm. That was a big thing. Um, we also knew that um, they were, the islands sat astride the equator and they were subject to the El Nino Southern Oscillation phenomenon. So there were years of drought um, and interspersed with years of terrific rain. So we would get huge differences, yearly differences, not s seasonal differences, but yearly differences, where probably a lot of the birds would die and we'd see who would survive and who hadn't and why. Mm -hmm. And so I think I'll stop it there and <laughs> hand it over to Peter because he goes with the same interest in the, um, being interested in the process of speciation, Peter's angle was slightly different, but complementary. Okay. Mm. Not much left over for me. Oh, <laughs> no, that's fine. I'm glad you said it all. Yeah. Um, so I'll step back and give you the context. Um, we were living in Montreal at the time, and I was a professor at McGill University. Um, the research started in 1973 when... Um, we were both 35 years old, and we had children of, uh, what was it, six years and eight years, I think it was, mm -hmm. at that time. Um, that's the context, because whatever I say is I, it's really we. That means Rosemary and I talked about these uh, problems uh, a lot before coming to the decision that the Galapagos would be an excellent place to go. Um, as Rosemary mentioned, uh, there were several environmental uh, factors favoring the study in the natural state of organisms. I had three basic questions in my mind. Uh, one was, how do species form? That's a question that I um, had as a graduate student. I carried on with afterwards, and I continued up to the point of deciding that the Galapagos and Darwin's finishes in particular would be a good system. The second uh, question was, to what extent is competition for resources, principally food, an important factor in determining which species can coexist with which um, and what the properties of those species are, where they occur together? And the third question was, why are some populations in morphology, that means body size and proportions, why are some populations so much more variable than others? That is, others that are related to, to them. Um, so, for example, in Galapagos, I knew, Rosemary also knew, uh, ahead of time, as a result of a monograph from Don David Lack in 1945, that Darwin's finches varied very much in body size and beak size from one island to another. 
So the population variation as measured by uh, uh, variance or coefficient of variation might be 50% greater for a population of a particular species on one island than on another. And therefore, uh, the system seemed to be a very suitable one by for making a comparative study of such populations to get at the question of why some populations are more variable than the other. So put all those three things together and it seemed like there was nowhere else where we could do a, a non-experimental observational comparative study of organisms living in nature to address those three questions. And so that's how we did it. How did you settle on Daphne Major as the, the focal island? And it's quite quite a small one, and you could have chosen many others, Yeah, many that's others, an easy right? one. So, David, yeah. David Lack had written about okay. that. Yeah. And he had shown that um, there was only one species of finch. Um, in, that was the medium ground spe uh, finch uh, on that island. And on other islands nearby, bigger ones, there were three species um, a small, a medium, and a large. So he was the medium ground finch on isolated from the other two that had apparently moved into the ecological niche of the small one. So in the absence of a competitor, mm -hmm. the one species there had taken over the food uh, available by the uh, made available by the missing species. So it looked a reasonable um, interpretation of uh, of the shift. Um, and therefore a possibly uh, suitable system for testing the competition hypothesis. It turned out to be much more complex. <laughs> there was another species on the island that, that called the cactus finch that may have played relatively little role in the evolution of the shift of the medium ground finch towards small size. But then there were occasional small ground finches turning up on the island, and something like 12 years after we began our study, along came a large ground finch and established a breeding population. So we learned an enormous amount that made that picture, that simple picture at the beginning, mm -hmm. uh, very complicated. Yeah. Yeah. The, the uh, other, just to add, the other reason why we chose Daphne to make an in-depth one, we had visited all the islands um, in the Galapagos, all the uninhabited islands in the Galapagos, and um, and had done small, you know, banding the birds, um, taken uh, and observations and those sorts of things. And we had done also, uh, um, parallel to Daphne, we did an in-depth study on Hennebesa, the island in the far north. But the huge advantage of Daphne was that it was very small. We could um, band um, sometimes 100% of the birds on the island, sometimes not as much as that, but a large proportion of the birds on the island. And the other thing is that during droughts, when birds were dying, and we've had two, two very severe droughts when um, 80 of the, roughly 80% of the birds died in the first one, and then up to 90% of the birds died in the, the next drought. But during droughts, um, on the other bigger islands, the birds fly up into the cloud forest mm. and the really high islands. On Daphne, it's small enough that they don't. They just stay there. They can't and, escape the brunt. And they can't, yeah. can't escape. And so this was a very good reason for choosing Daphne. Mm. And then Henevesa, which was in the far northeastern part of the archipelago, 
had is much larger. It's a circular island about five miles in diameter. And we could really only have, uh, you we couldn't possibly um, <laughs> get all the birds on an island that size. It was a low island, so the same pattern of things happened there, but we could only use a study site rather than the whole island. But it was a very nice comparison. We mm. found the parallel things happening on those two islands. So another big factor was that yeah. um, when we went back to the set of islands in the dry season that we had visited earlier yeah. in the wet season, we could find maybe about 5% of the birds that we had banded beforehand. The rest had either died or moved out of the study areas up into the highlands. On Daphne, we found an incredible 85% still mm. there mm. alive. And we thought, well, this is a wonderful environment for doing a population-level study. Mm. And we never looked back from then on. Mm. Fantastic. So um, we want to talk uh, about this 2018 paper that you had with, I'm not going to pronounce the name correctly. Oh, Lamachani. 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 Yeah. Um, but I, I have to ask another question that maybe leads into it, but it's, it's up to you whether, whether it does. What would you say is your most important contribution from the work in Galapagos? Um, I would say there were three. Okay. <laughs> three is good. We've had a lot of threes. Immodestly. <laughs> um, no, one of them is the fact that we were able to show um, and document natural selection with an evolutionary response to natural selection and know why it happened and how it happened. Mm -hmm. um, the, you just say why that was in important. Okay, I, carry on. Well, I, I think just add to the fact that um, this was in the late 1970s, and at that time, it was generally thought that, yes, bacteria evolve quickly, but big things like birds uh, don't. Mm -hmm. And I think it was um, uh, a, a very influential uh, piece of work uh, done in an entirely natural environment that showed uh, evolution as a natural force on that scale of contemporary time. Mm -hmm. Over to you for number two and three. <laughs> <laughs> well, number two and three are related. Um, the, when we first started um, and when we first actually saw, to our amazement, I must say, because we weren't looking for it, when we first saw this um, hybridization with introgression and saw that gene flow was going um, across species, um, this was, um, at that time, very. it was known in plants, but it was considered not to occur in animals. And this was, and this was partly Ernst Meyer had written very strongly about this. And so nobody was looking and people felt very strongly about this. And then there were a few people, um, so we pu published this and it was quite difficult to get published, but there were a few people who had seen this in animals, and we got together as a group in Germany, and it was a very small conference. Um, I, I just, um, Oli Seehausen was there, and a, a few other people, Mike, Ar um, Mike Arnold was there, and and their students, so very, and, and then we were able to publish um, our um, works. Uh, we had published a little bit before that, but then it got really took on. <laughs> and now, of course, you open any um, journal. I mean, you're just swamped in um, this, in our early ancestors with the Denisovans and Neanderthals mm -hmm. um, in, interbreeding and ingressing with the, the 
wonderful butterfly work um, explaining how the mimicry pattern came about through introgression, mm -hmm. genetic introgression. So I think that was, uh, because it was one of the early ones, I think that was another big piece. And then the third can I just add, one... Can I just add, um, I think it's, uh, th there were uh, studies mm -hmm. done on animal hybridization before, Oh, yes. But, but, but they were rather few and far between, mm -hmm. and it was thought that, yes, a few organisms do exchange genes by interbreeding, uh, but it doesn't lead anywhere. Mm -hmm. It wasn't mm -hmm. really a very important influence in mm -hmm. evolution in general. The mood of the scientific community has changed considerably mm -hmm. in the last 30, 40 years as a result, not just of our work, but of a lot of other studies as well on a vast number of uh, organisms. Mm -hmm. Yes, and and was, it was then considered, as, as Peter said, it was considered what was really interesting about this was the fact that it showed a boundary between species. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, and, and which is, of course, very, very interesting. But then also this introgression with from the viewpoint of um, the process of speciation is very important because genes can come in. Um, and then be selected on and go off in a new environment in a different trajectory. Mm -hmm. So we had, so that I think was, and then, but then our final one, which was really luck, I mean, well, luck plays a big role. <laughs> in it's a all big part this. of science. And, 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 favors the prepared. Right? And, um, and this was our so called Big Bird story, mm -hmm. and where we have been able to follow the. Um, lineage from its um, inception right at the beginning uh, to, um, through six generations or more than six generations, but in great detail. We're, we're every following every single bird, taking blood samples from every single bird, a measurement from every single bird, mm -hmm. and showing that um, this new lineage is completely behaving like a separate species. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. In, in all characteristics, in size, in song, and in, um, and in um, morphology. And, and very interestingly, it has shown um, an allometric shift. And I think this, we've twice shown an allometric shift. So I think this also, you can add a fourth one maybe. Mm -hmm. They're showing a, in the wild an allometric shift has been actually occurred. Mm -hmm. So these big birds have a relatively big head and big beak on a small body, mm -hmm. which um, gives not, them a... Yes, yeah, not supposed yeah, to happen, yeah, not which typical is not, of others. So not yeah. typically yeah. supposed mm -hmm. to happen. It's mm -hmm. often very yeah. easy to get. So I think those, um, those I would consider possibly... Um, no. So I don't think you mentioned the origin... A big bird? Of the big bird. Yeah, oh, yeah. We yeah well, we yeah. wanted to talk yeah. about the yeah. entire story. Yeah. You, yeah. you had discovered that this paper that I just mentioned, that was 2018, but the, yes. there was a paper in PNAS years yes. ago. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Well, right. this, this paper was <clears throat> because we kept the one good thing we really did is we kept all the blood samples that we've ever taken. Mm -hmm. So we had, we put them on little bits of filter paper and we'd keep them in a, um, a minus 30 um, freezer. Mm -hmm. And so we could take little um, snips of these filter papers and take and it was so what we did is through these um, the big bird story through the different droughts we've been able to go back and see um, birds that we 
um, that lived before the droughts and then the ones that survived after the droughts. And then with all the big birds, we were able to send this paper over to Uppsala. They were able to do whole genome analysis, mm -hmm. whereas we'd only used microsatellites before. Mm -hmm. They were able to do whole genome analysis. Mm -hmm. So this paper you're referring to is the, uh, comes out of the blood samples that we gave to our um, genomic collaborators in Uppsala, and mm -hmm. they have been able to, and so it was, it comes out of Leif Anderson's lab, mm -hmm. and Sangeet mm -hmm. Lamechani um, is a Nepali, um, uh, he was a PhD student of, okay. of Leif's. Okay, and so the most, most dramatic thing for us, who had already established a new lineage had occurred, had developed on the island, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and we'd followed it as a reproductively isolated mini-population. Members were breeding amongst themselves, but not with anything else. The most dramatic discovery that came out of the lab for us was the origin of the first bird that was the ancestor of the, of the lineage. This was an immigrant, which we knew, and we thought was just another member of the medium ground finch population, uh, species rather, from another island nearby. Mm -hmm. And it turned out we were completely wrong. The molecular genetic analysis said that it, no, it belonged to a different species called Conirostris, the large cactus finch, that had originated on Espanola more than a hundred kilometers away. <laughs> and and or, I would like to say we had no idea about that because that would sound very dramatic. But actually both Rosemary <laughs> and I had mentioned, written down in our notebooks independently, this looks like, extraordinarily like, a conirostris from Espanola, but surely ca that can't, <laughs> can't be, be right. No. Can't be. So we actually thought, and we actually, I think, published it in the original paper, that we thought that one of the most likely things was that it, because it didn't really look, I mean, it looked like a blown-up fortis, yes, mm -hmm. but there was something that wasn't right, and we thought that maybe it was a hybrid that had come over from Santa Cruz, it was mm -hmm. Scandin's fortis hybrid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we'd done some microsatellite work which supported of that, right. but it, of course, microsatellites are just small repeat units, and the resolution is not high. And so, and I can even remember going to the museum in um, in um, New York and looking at all the Darwin's finches in the bird tray and saying, you know, that big bird still looks like an Espanol <laughs> Conrad. <laughs> so right. it was, it was partly, you know, we were happy about this, um, but we had to, you know, when we published, we had to say, <laughs> okay, originally we thought that it was not this right. good. Yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah. So it's a hundred kilometers this bird flies I from know. one island How and it, and it also it? flew across Santa Cruz. Well, right? I did Which that is all very around, around. Yeah. but yes. there's a big landmass in between the island yeah. where you yeah. work and this I other know. one. And they could have stopped there, but it kept going. And we think the reason why it did keep going mm -hmm. is that other birds were moving along the eastern coast of uh, Santa Cruz. Oh, I mm -hmm. have this is post-breeding season. Okay. And, yeah. and at that time, there's a lot of movement out of local breeding areas into other areas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is we it more see dispersal that. by males than females? Yes. The, we yes. see that on yes. Daphne. We yes. see yes. birds that have obviously originated on another yes. island. For example, the small ground finch. Uh, round about July, August, September. After a good breeding season, there'll be... Um, scores of them uh, on Daphne. They suddenly appear 
Um, we banned them, we measured them, we followed their fates, and then the following breeding, breeding season, they suddenly disappear. Hmm. They, they don't stay, with one or two exceptions, mm-hmm. with one or two, mm-hmm. uh, and that is important. But uh, the vast majority disappear. And so we think they don't die on that day, that, that they go back to their island of origin mm-hmm. and breed there. Let's let's push the envelope as far yeah, as you're willing yeah, yeah, to yeah. go. Yeah. Where, when do you think you'd be comfortable saying that you've observed a speciation event? Well, um. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll answer that and say it's um, it's really an arbitrary matter. Yeah, yeah. I thought we, you might we say held, that. We yeah. held back. Uh, we were tempted to declare the discovery of a new species. Uh, but then in discussion, we said, well, how many generations should they be isolated from the parental species? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, are you satisfied with two? Oh, no, no, that's much too short. What about three or four? Uh, well, and I'm convinced that they're uh, an entity that should be recognized as something separate, but um, not so sure that we should call it a species. But then... Other people, whatever we do, we're bound to encounter people with the opposite view. <laughs> so we've said, we've given uh, lectures before where we have declared confidently that this is almost a new species because it's been isolated for six generations. And somebody uh, in the audience has said, well, are you sure that six is really enough? Because <laughs> So all right, we backed off and said, no, no, um, this is uh, a lineage on the way towards becoming a new species, but it hasn't reached that state. And other people have said, well, um, you've shown that it's reproductively isolated. That's persisted for several generations. So why don't you just be bold and declare that it's a new species (laughs) and and qualify it with the fact that it's only six generations? So we're caught between these two extremes. And the best way is to sit on the fence and say (laughs) it's a... Potentially, it's a new lineage. Yeah, it's a new lineage that is a potential new species. It shows us more, uh, not what a species is, but the process. Exactly, an unusual process, Mm -hmm. perhaps, but one process that can lead to reproductively isolated individuals from their parental ancestors. Mm -hmm. I mean, this this point of whether it is a new species is always a difficult one, really, because it's a it's a very gradual process. And but I, as Peter said, I think what it does show is the process of speciation. And what I can, what we have, I mean, we've looked back into the past in the phylogeny, and we've done these <clears throat> ababa tests on um, the whole uh, whole genome and that sort of thing, and found that there must have been introgression going on in the past quite mm. a bit. And we can envisage that um, there could be this sort of process happening in the past. It could wink in and could wink out. And, but in some cases, it just goes on for many, many, many generations and becomes very, very distinct from mm-hmm. all uh, everything else. Mm-hmm. But I think the exciting thing that I think is we've seen one of these processes that could lead on or could wink out. But mm-hmm. whether it does or not, it gives us extraordinarily valuable information in full detail about this, yeah, how yeah. this can happen. I think, mm-hmm. it, I think a little bit more than that, it gives us a perspective on what must have happened over the millennia. Um, the finches uh, are approximately one million years old as a group on the Galapagos, maybe a, a bit more. And... Um, 
can we really believe that we saw a new species formed in the one 40-year period? <laughs> Very that, good that, luck. That, that we happen to yeah. be alive and able to make these observations because uh, surely, this is the way the argument goes, if this happened once, surely it would have happened many times before. There should be thousands of did, finch species on If that, it did yeah. happen many times before, that also the corollary is uh, these populations must have gone extinct many times mm -hmm. because we have a net uh, a number of species of 18 at the moment as we currently recognize them. Well, we've had uh, one million years to form 18 species. Perhaps um, there have been 36 species or mm -hmm. 136 species formed over the whole of the million years. Mm -hmm. And many of them didn't persist long enough for us to know anything about them. Right. At the time, if a new lineage had formed anything like uh, in the manner that we observed, and it had persisted for 150 generations. Anybody living at that time, were there such people, they would have said, oh, we've got a new species. Look, it's been around for 150 generations. Mm -hmm. yeah. But then it didn't then persist for longer. Yeah. Uh, this yeah. thing must have, I think, uh, the, the, the overall picture, in other words, is one of extreme dynamism if you project backwards in time to an environment that has been fluctuating in ways associated with glacial, interglacial cycles. Mm -hmm. Temperatures have gone up and down. Rainfall patterns have gone up and down. And the finches must have experienced these fluctuations and responded evolutionarily mm -hmm. in ways that we can only speculate because mm -hmm. we don't have fossils. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And, yeah. and in, the, in the phylogeny, the, the finches that we are working with are um, very recent. So they have been actually around... Um, for less than a million years, but the the whole, well, um, actually, in a, a, a very, I mean, very recently, how how long would the geospizer um, lineage? Oh, on the order of one to three hundred thousand years, yeah. yes, a third of a million years. Yeah. Yes. So when we look back at the um, at the base of the phylogeny and see the warbler finch, um, that um, is, it varies with somewhere between one to two million years. Mm -hmm. But then the, there's a, quite a gap um, in, if you look at the different species coming out and then the tips of the trees where all the, uh, the most recent species are. So we, because we don't have a fossil record, we don't know what has been happening mm -hmm. in this gap. And mm -hmm. if these sorts of things have been happening, um, and especially with islands due to the fluctuation in glacial, um, the islands coalescing and then separating, mm -hmm. they could easily have been happening and then some of these could have gone, well, almost certainly gone mm, extinct. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, um, because we just don't see some of them, we just see the, the remains. The ones that are yeah, the yeah, ones around, that are, yeah, yeah. grand yeah. vision. step back just from Darwin's finches for a moment and um, ask sort of more broadly about what you think the importance of hybridization is among other other vertebrates. And you've talked about this a little bit. Yeah. But I want to frame it by asking a question that was put in by somebody on our from our Patreon page, a uh, so financial supporter of the podcast named Harry Newell, who's asking about the role of hybridization in the eastern coyote. Oh, yes. And uh, I also, in my classes, teach about the red wolf and yes. its possible hybrid origins from yeah. hybridization of wolves and coyotes. Yes. So, yeah. so I guess the, the broad question is, um, you know, based, based on what you've learned in Darwin's finches, how broad do you think this is across vertebrates more generally? I think it's, um, it is very broad. Uh, I mean, we've been inspired by using quite a lot of the techniques that have been developed from the the Svante Papos group and later uh -huh. from the um, 
um, from our own ancestors, where clearly um, integration of certain genes were, um, were very important in the development of our own species. Um, we see it so often. We see it in almost, well, everywhere we see it now. We see it in lizards. We see it in um, being very important, hybridization. We see it in the, I mean, I think the butterfly work is absolutely magnificent. I never thought that um, some of these mimicry patterns could be explained in this way, mm -hmm. but it makes perfect sense. They obviously have been. Um, and... Um, so I think now it is it is extremely widespread. I mean, I'm not saying it. In fact, I will not say that it's the only way of speciation sure. at all. But it certainly, I think, has been very important. And when you think of just putting a, a whole genome together, it's going to be much more powerful than just mutations. You're just putting large amounts together and upon which selection can act. Right. Mm -hmm. and Massive a, variation of it. Yes, mm -hmm. immediate variation. And one of the thing, exciting things is, which actually we are working on right now with our Leif Anderson's group, and I hope um, very soon in the next year and um, couple of years, we'll be able to say a lot more about this, but we're looking at what genes get across and what genes don't get across, mm. because that is really interesting, because genes that get across can be selected on and in changing environments can lead off into a new trajectory. Um, but genes that don't get across are equally interesting because this could be the beginning of the development of really strong reproductive isolation between populations. Mm -hmm. So, and what what gets across and what doesn't and how the, this um, plays is, I think, a very exciting part, which I hope we will still be alive, working <laughs> with Leif, to see in the next few years. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Yes. So, um, that, that, yes, that's most of uh, what I have on my mind to say also. Um, but uh, the incidence of it, the, that is the frequency, um, about... 25 years ago, a little bit more than 25 years ago, we did a survey of the literature on bird hybridization, um, building on the work of others, and we came up with a figure of one in 10 species of birds are known to hybridize at least once. Hmm. That gives a picture of the breadth, the frequency across the broad tree of birds, and there are 10,000 species of birds. Mm -hmm. So it's a large number of birds that mm -hmm. have been known to hybridize. <clears throat> Excuse me. When you think that hardly anything is known about the actual lives of tropical birds, the number must surely right. be higher. The frequency must be higher. Well, in the last few years... That kind of survey work has been uh, updated by a Belgian scientist called Jens Ottenberg, and he has basically doubled the frequency from 10% to 20%. And I think you could probably say the same about all the other major vertebrate groups. It's well known that several mammal species hybridize, many fish species hybridize, mm -hmm. amphibians, reptiles hybridize, and um, the patterns are not only known, uh, but also the consequences of hybridization are known for many of them. It's not just a matter of hybridizing and then producing sterile hybrids. Many of these hybrids formed back cross to one parental generation or another. Mm -hmm. So they ex the two species that hybridize exchange genes, genes introgress, 
and um, the evolutionary significance of that gene exchange at the moment is not well known, but is a very exciting problem area for people to address in the future. As we get more and more information from molecular genetics, the more we will learn about exactly the extent of gene penetration from one species to another. Yes. But here I'm going to put in a little plug about ecology and field studies. Because unless those are done, and preferably in as natural environment as possible uh, over a long period of time, it won't really be known from contemporary studies what the fitness, fitness benefits are of genes that are being transferred, mm -hmm. except in a few cases like um, uh, mosquitoes and um, rodenticide genes that are transmitted um, from rats between uh, mammal species. A few outstanding cases, and of course in the bacterial world we have many studies, mm -hmm. but in terms of the metazoans, the diploid species sexually reproducing uh, metazoans, um, we need the field studies to be able to interpret the patterns that we infer from molecular genetic data. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think and we should... Oh, go ahead. Go well, ahead. I was just going to say, I sometimes end the... Because usually I go second in seminars. I sometimes end the seminar by putting a, a plea for this field. Mm -hmm. Because now um, most of um, most of the funding gets given to um, the genetic work mm -hmm. and much less funding gets give, given to the That's actual work. field yeah. work. And I think the two need to go along together, mm -hmm. as Peter said, to be able to interpret these patterns. So it's no good just going out and collecting blood samples or tissue samples and then just assuming what happens. You've right. really got to know what happens in the um, in the wild. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. So let's pull back maybe. I think we have maybe 10 minutes left yeah, before we, minutes, we yeah. need to, to move <laughs> over to the other. Just pull back really broadly and um, we don't have to spend a lot of time on the meaning of life <laughs> <laughs> sure go um, not ten, ten maybe minutes or less. not quite that broadly but um, there's been an appeal by quite a few folks for an extension of the evolutionary synthesis oh. um, we, we don't have to get into all of the details but are, are we talking about something different does evolutionary theory need an update or what's your perspective my um Shall I go first? Sure. <laughs> My pr perspective, which I, th I think we agree very strongly on this, that is definitely not because the um, it's not what uh, these extended evolutionary synthesis people are doing. I think that's very valuable. I mean, the actual work that they're doing mm -hmm. is very valuable. Um, but it's part. It's always been known. It's part of the evolutionary theory. I mean, even Darwin, when he first um, talked about his earthworms, the earthworms modify um, the environment for not only earthworms but other things. Mm -hmm. So this is what is now called the niche. What is it? Niche construction, construction mm -hmm. theory. Um, learned and wrote a lot about this. So it's not a new idea at all. And then in all the things that they've raised have all been part of the evolutionary theory. Now, when I um, was teaching, um, and um, I would always start this by saying, really, from um, the concept from the conception to depth, death, sorry, conception to death in organisms, there's always gene environmental interaction. And the gene environmental interaction is very important. So when you're wanting to tackle a question, and just as our big question, initial question was um, looking into the process of speciation, we can't just tackle this from the genes, and we, and we can't just tackle it. We need behavior. 
um, ecology and um, and the genetics. Mm -hmm. And that is all under the umbre umbrella of evolutionary theory. So in my view, we certainly don't need an extension because mm -hmm. it is all there. Mm -hmm. And what is why should we divide it up into little bits, mm -hmm. which is what they have taken um, three little bits, I think, and then said, well, this is a new extension of the theory. But we don't need this because those three bits were already already there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think also there's a danger in muddling um, people when you start dividing a perfectly good theory up into little bits, and and then um, and then you get then you get these arguments about well, is this this or is this right. this or this, this more this. important than that one and these yes, types of things? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So that's my view. Yeah, Peter, would you agree? More more or less the same. I would say more uh, in the slightly different words. I. The, as I understand it, this m movement uh, draws attention to non-genetic factors uh, that may influence the ways in which genes are expressed and also affect the fitness of individuals. And by doing so, they are helping us to pay more attention to environmental factors. I don't think it's fundamentally new. I agree with what Rosemary has said, but it, it does... The, the, the writings of the people who adopt these views helps us to remember, if we have forgotten, that it is important to be constantly thinking about how does the environment uh, feedback on uh, the genetic constitution of individuals as they are growing their performance as either young or adults. How do the individuals alter their environment that has then a feedback on their fitness? We know about this. We know about that feedback. But if we've not paid enough attention to it, I think it's good to be reminded of these con uh, constantly of these uh, feedback loops. But I think that most geneticists understand the principles perfectly well. So I, my, my end point is my starting point is that it's not really anything fundamentally new. It's more mm -hmm. an emphasis in the environmental feedback uh, mm -hmm. region that is getting a lot of attention from some people, deservedly so, mm -hmm. and, and needs to be, if anything, paid more attention to by people who don't pay attention to it enough. Yeah. No. But yeah, I think, enough. I mean, ever since when I was an undergraduate, ever since um, people always emphasized the gene environmental interaction mm -hmm. as being crucial, absolutely important. And so um, I think, you know, a really well-taught evolutionary course always emphasizes that connection and yeah so yeah. I, I i think it yeah i, I think yeah. it is unnecessary what do you think what do you think <laughs> oh uh, we're i don't think we have time for that and, uh, <laughs> oh, wow nice dodge yeah uh, well that's that's a yeah, cop out it's, yeah. it's, it's, well i i think i i'm coming from your perspective just really briefly the, the same sort of thing that it's it the the obvious positive effects are that it does help us to focus on some things that maybe haven't gotten, well, historically definitely haven't gotten as much attention. Um, yeah. And I guess I would just add, it feels like there's been a historical over uh, focus on genetic determinism mm -hmm. in, in the role that genes play in traits. And so it's nice to see people expanding out of yeah, that sort of narrower view. Of, that's a corrective. Okay. Yes. Well, yeah. that's except a, that's... I would argue that a lot of that, I mean, some of the really good work, but by Lundgren, let's say, I mean, he argued for this early on. Mm -hmm. And I think people, you, you don't find, you know, sometimes I wonder with these the, people, they actually 
whether it's they don't know about this early work or they deliberately will not cite it mm -hmm. because it makes their work seem a little bit more important. But <laughs> I, I, I don't. It's, but happen. a lot of that work is not cited. I mean, look at, well, for example, Waddington's work. And the, which um, the epigenetics. Mm -hmm. I mean, Waddington mm -hmm. was strong on this, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, and so a lot of that is either misquoted or not mm -hmm. quoted correctly. A lot of Lewontin's work is just not quoted, mm -hmm. and so it's it's really not new. Yeah, and yeah. and it's I mean we well we've spent a lot of time looking at the behaviour. I mean, it, that's how we find out how why they hybridize is because so they mislearn the song. I mm -hmm. mean, so we we look at everything from both the ecological perspective and the behavior perspective as well. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. I think I think what our last thing, which we said was there should be more work put into um, looking into the field and seeing exactly how these organisms, how organisms behave in the field is crucial. Mm -hmm. But yeah. you don't need a new theory to do that. Right. Yeah. You just yeah. need um, perhaps more... Go um, out and do it. <laughs> yes, do it. Because a lot of people don't like working in the field. I mean, it's often very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. yeah, and so, Tuna and rice all the time, every night. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned the phrase genetic determinism. That's an extreme form of how genes govern evolutionary processes. I would say there's an environmental determinism, which is also an extreme view of the mm -hmm. opposite sort, mm -hmm. and that most evolutionary biologists, I think, would avoid both extremes. Yes, agreed. agreed. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you well, talk, yes, often talking about, you know, sort of good scientists and, you know, the scientists that, are, well, I won't say good or bad. I say that some scientists are, are, are more broad um, and have broader questions, others narrow that's questions. Mm -hmm. that's, yeah. yeah, that's definitely a part of where some of this comes. Yeah. Yes. The grant's work in the Galapagos has been a goldmine for evolutionary biology. They've provided some of the most direct evidence that we have for rapid evolution by natural selection in the wild. They've also shown how developmental genes evolve during selection, and they've revealed that hybridization might even be a path to speciation in Darwin's finches and perhaps other animals. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. Please support us on Patreon. Our patrons get access to exclusive content and can also submit questions for our guests. You can sign up at patreon.com bigbio. On our next episode, we talk to Francis Champagne about epigenetic influences on animal behavior. Biologists have tended to focus on primary DNA sequences, but Francis and others have recently started to ask how extra chemical marks on the genome also affect gene expression. Processes such as DNA methylation affect how genes get activated, which then drives individual differences in behavior. Some of these marks can be induced environmentally, but inherited independently of the DNA sequence. What's exciting about these processes is that they represent a possible form of Lamarckian inheritance. We have a germline, but we have environments and both are working. So that's been really my goal, I'd say, and especially in the last five years, is trying to make the case that just looking at the germline and not thinking about anything else is going to be a very limiting way to think about inheritance. Thanks to the biology grad students at the University of Montana for inviting the grants out to campus for several days of seminars and talks, during which time we recorded our chat with them. 
Thanks also to Matt Bloys for producing this episode. Chloe Ramsey helps manage our social media channels. Mike Levine helps us with social media and Patreon. As always, Steve Lane manages our website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support. Thanks also to Jewel Banbull and the School of Journalism at the University of Montana for helping us to record the episode. Music on this episode is from Poddington Bear.